Hello, and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show where we explore the underlying causes of our divides, including especially the rural-urban divide, and then talk to folks who've really looked deeply into it and who are trying to do something about it. And today's guest fits that mold very well. She's a person that I met about six months ago. Uh, it was one of the highlights of my life to meet Farrah Stockman. Um, I think outside of um, Sylvia Pajoli, she would have been my number one person to meet, Farrah. So. <laughs> awesome. But um, Farrah Stockman is on the editorial board of The New York Times. She's been a journalist for many years. Her focus has not been specifically the rural-urban divide, but along her path of journalism, as you'll soon hear, she wrote a book that touches on many of the dimensions of what divides us. So I want to welcome to Two Worlds, One Country, Farrah Stockman. Thank you so much for having me on. What a great introduction. That, was, that makes me blush. Oh, good, good. That's what we hope for. Put our, put our guests on the defensive through flattery. So, <laughs> so Farrah, I want to start, as we usually do with our guests, with just a, a little bit about your own upbringing, the, the place, the people, and all of that, so folks have a sense of where you came from. Yeah, well, I grew up in Michigan, East Lansing, Michigan, a college town um, where Michigan State is. My mother and father were both professors there. My mother is a black woman from Mississippi, so she grew up um, during uh, during Jim Crow, really. Uh, she was born during Jim Crow, grew up in segregated schools, and was one of the uh, first people to, uh, uh, black people in her community to have opportunities like reading the black news on the radio mm. uh in in mississippi they gave five minutes for black people news and my mother was the one who in high school was able to read that oh, wow. she ended up going to um college and graduate school and getting her phd so she's incredibly accomplished now and uh, still alive um it's still married to my dad who's a white guy from pennsylvania he was a math professor, well, got into computer science. And so they landed in, in Michigan as a, a place where they both ended up getting jobs. And my sister and I uh, sort of graduated from high school there. It was, a, it was a great community to grow up in. And I ended up promptly leaving uh, and going away to the East Coast for college. We don't have a ton of time, but, but tell me how your mom and dad met. Uh, they met in graduate school. Okay. Uh, they met, I think it was at Penn State. Yeah, okay. I think uh, some kind of somebody was looking for a ride and somebody gave a ride. And uh, if you, you know, if you look back at pictures of uh, from that time, they got married in 1969 when they were, uh, I believe, one of the very first uh, legal interracial marriages in the state of Virginia. Yeah. And you're like, what did these two people have in common? And you look at pictures and like, oh, they were both smoking hot. Okay, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's a great, great description. I'm sure they'd love to hear that. Cool. So let's talk about, so you, you went off to school and you got into journalism pretty much right out of school. Is that right? Yeah. I In college, I didn't do a lot of journalism. And so I felt all washed up at age 21 when I graduated without having done journalism in college. But <laughs> I ended up getting a fellowship to work with street children in Kenya. So I moved to Kenya wow. and ran sort of a informal school with a Kenyan teacher and we taught kids who didn't wear shoes and uh, 
We, um, I uh, helped found a program that still exists today, actually. Um, but somewhere in there, I, I, I realized there were a lot of journalists in Nairobi. And so I decided to try to intern for one of them. I mm-hmm. literally looked in a phone book, which existed back then, mm-hmm. and called up uh, the New York Times office and said, can I be your unpaid intern for a while? And the journalist at the time there said, well, I, you know, I don't know. That's kind of weird. We don't really do that. But he let me, he essentially let me hang out there, gave me a key to the office where I could read all the newspapers. And right around the time I was getting, getting broke, you know, I was going broke. uh, The Nairobi embassy bombing happened. And so um, suddenly Nairobi became the biggest story in the world. And everybody, a whole team of investigative journalists came to Kenya and I ended up working with them. And I could navigate because I'd worked with street kids. I could navigate. I could take a bus. I could go through the slums and talk to people. And so um, every day they would like throw a copy of the local newspaper on the table and say, this guy got arrested. Go find him. Well, who is huh. he? What's he about? And and I would, by the end of the day, I would I would have the I would have the story and lead the reporter to the person he was supposed to talk to. And you were still formally an intern at this point, or you were a paid I was staff just, journalist? I was nobody. I wouldn't even get, my name would, appeared nowhere on their stories. Wow. Uh, back then, they they had a policy. Like, I even wrote a story all by myself, and it just said, the New York Times. It didn't have a byline. <laughs> but you were the person who gave them entree to the people in the places that they needed. I was a fixer. That yeah, was fixer. that was my role. Wow. And uh, every story you read from... Uh, from a foreign location likely has fixers. Nowadays, they give a lot more credit to fixers yeah. and people on the ground. But at the time, I, I was that was that was not how I came up. That's very cool, and not surprising to me that your your experience started with working in the trenches with with street kids and sort of grew into journalism rather than the other way around. So, as a journalist, uh, you've done a lot of things, but. You've had to remind me, because your your book was my first knowledge of you, you've had to remind me that your real focus has been on international affairs and, and particularly China of late. So that's not the focus of this interview, but tell us a little bit about that. How Kind of how did you get to that focus and where are you spending your time now? Because China is certainly on people's minds and yeah. in the news. Well, I lived in Africa for around three years doing uh journalism, bringing, trying to, trying to make a living. And then I got a job with the Boston Globe where they gave me a chance. I had a very non-traditional background, so they weren't sure they could take a chance on me, but they're like, okay, we'll give you this year position. And um, so I got on the Metro desk and they sent me covering like fires and crimes and stuff like that. And uh, corruption scandals that seemed very tame compared to what I had been covering in Kenya. But um Eventually, um, uh, an editor named P- Peter Canellis, who was the guy that hired me, uh, he became the Washington bureau chief and he brought me down to Washington mm. and said, cover the State Department. And I was like, I am so unqualified to cover the State Department. But um, I guess because I had that bit of foreign policy experience of going, you know, being abroad, he thought I he could give me a, give it a try. So I covered the State Department for seven years, Iraq War, Afghanistan you know, um, Iran, lots of places like that, wow. reported from lots of places like that. And then I ended up getting on at the New York Times, kind of as a political reporter, but have since sort of made a switch to uh, to doing the opinion page again, 
I, at, at the end of my career at, at the Globe, uh, the same editor became the editor of the opinion page, and he brought me back to mm. Boston to do opinion journalism and work on the editorial page there. So, well, you know, the moral of the story is in journalism, if you have a mentor who's going to take you everywhere with him, follow him if he goes good places. Yeah, that's great. I I have to say that almost everything I've done in my life, I've been totally unqualified for when I started. So it's actually kind of a cool way to enter because you don't have a whole lot of presumptions. You, you certainly don't have a lot of errors about what you know, because you don't know much. And it sounds like you had a little bit of that going for you. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. And working for the Boston Globe in Washington, like no one, you know, no one paid attention to us. So I could do mm. spend my time doing pretty cool stories that would surprise people. So, and China is a focus now. Is it mostly around, or, or am I right about that? Is or is it? Yeah, I mean, I think we're you know we're in a geopolitical moment right now where the United States has woken up, or many in the United States have woken up to the fact that you know uh, China is a competitor, and mm -hmm. you know for a long time, and it's it's something that I saw coming because of my book and. Um, and uh, speaking to so many people who um, lost factory jobs to China and to Mexico, and they were very upset about having lost these jobs. And uh, my, you know, a big thesis of the book is that the rise of Donald Trump can at least partially be explained by people in the Rust Belt, people in places like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania and uh, Wisconsin, who were very angry about having lost their jobs. And so they wanted to vote in somebody who was going to put tariffs on China and who is mm -hmm. going to stop the factories from moving away, which is exactly what Donald Trump promised to do. Right. Um, so I, I think the Biden administration got that memo and they did not um, remove the tariffs. And so we sort of, you know, we're in a new reality now where both parties are saying, hey, this um, this age of sending away blue collar jobs has brought us to a place that we're not sure we want to be. Right. And how do we stop it? And so there's they put the brakes on the last 30 years of U.S. foreign policy, essentially, when it comes to free trade and the treatment of China. Um, right, right. It's a pretty complicated issue, and I'm by no means an expert, but when I've looked into trade policy, you know, the people will present it as, so what do you want to do? Close down all our borders? Look what you're wearing. You know, there's always this kind of like, there's sure, no sure, alternative, sure. right? Sure, and, sure. And, and yet at the same time, I've always felt that it must be possible to fashion trade policy that is driven by the concerns of workers and everyday people and not by the investor class. Somehow, we've got to be able to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, that's what Biden promises to do, right? right. He's talked about having a foreign mm. policy for the working class, having a trade policy for the working class. And, you know, it's it's quite interesting because on this issue, I think there's a lot of overlap between Trump and Biden. Mm -hmm. And no one wants to talk about this, right. but Bob Lighthizer, who was Trump's trade rep, grew up in Ashtabula, Ohio, mm -hmm. a steel town, and uh, spent his career um, basically bringing cases against, dumping cases um, uh, against places like China for dumping uh, on the U.S. market at below market prices. And um, so he really was passionate about this idea of tariffs. Tariffs were his idea, totally. Hmm. And 
he's quite he he, he regards Catherine Ty Biden's trade rep as as uh, he he respects her deeply and she mm. respects him. There's a lot of overlap between mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lighthizer and Democrats. Yeah, um, interesting. That's really uh, the interesting. renegotiation of NAFTA, all of that stuff comes from this sort of part of the Democratic Party that's always felt that NAFTA sold out workers, sold out the blue blue collar people. And um, in favor of big corporations that just wanted to like lower their costs and move things overseas and or abroad and um, and sell them back into the United States. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it is complicated because I do think you can go overboard. Right. I think there's been a lot of. Uh, you know, people people benefit when they can go and buy a, a fleece jacket for fifteen dollars, right? If you're right. broke, you don't want to spend two hundred dollars on a fleece jacket. Right. Um, so I get that, um, and I think that that's really real. I guess I would just say two things. One is that um, other countries, when they made uh, this kind of choice uh, to to send their manufacturing <laughs> away, they actually retrained their workers. Uh, to do higher level stuff. They had a plan, right? They had a plan for what those people were going to do. They thought about it. They also had a bigger social safety net for those workers. And here in the United States, you lose your job, you you lose your health care, right? And and we really have done very poorly with planning what are these blue collar jobs going to be. And now we're finding ourselves in a situation where we actually have a very hollowed out industrial base. And it's starting to scare people because they're starting to realize hey we don't make penicillin anymore Mm. like a lot of things we invented we don't actually make it anymore Mm -hmm. it's all made in china and if we ever went to war with them they just stop selling it to us and we would lose the war so if you think about if you think about why we won world war ii and and that was not inevitable we had factories that could be changed uh, quite quickly into munitions right. uh, factories. Tanks and, and jeeps if we didn't and have a car bit, industry, yeah. I don't think we would have won World War II. Right. And so, um, you know, not saying that everything has to be viewed through a war lens, because I, look, I, I think China has been looking out for its people. Right. It, it, it had a plan for how it was going to employ all those people. And um, and our our CEOs got in bed with that plan because they were making a ton of money. Yeah. And so we just have to think about our own people, not just the CEOs, not just the ones who want to sell insurance in Mexico, uh, but our workers. What yeah. are they going to do? What are What is going to be our our contribution to the world and what are the things that we have to make sure we keep making just to um just to protect ourselves right, um right, right. it's not just you know weapons it's also you know uh, computer chips and other things i think there you know reasonable people can disagree about how much you should bring back and whether friend shoring or ally shoring bringing things to to our allies is 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 also going to help lower costs. But, you know, we fought a whole civil rights movement and a whole labor movement and a whole women's rights movement so that people could have good paying jobs in the United States so that there could be a middle class so that people uh, so that we wouldn't have slave labor, you know, so that companies couldn't like pour toxins directly into the ground. Right. Right. As soon as we won those fights, what do we do? We send our factories to places where their slave labor, right. where they pour toxins into the ground, all of those things, right? Right. And right. now, uh, and then we just 
buy it back from them. So there's something wrong with that picture. Absolutely. I don't know the answer. I'm not claiming I know it, but there's something wrong. Not to mention some of the provisions in some of those trade deals that allow the companies that uh, find themselves up against a government's environmental or labor rights laws being able to sue those companies uh, those countries oh, yeah. for lost profits i mean it's it's a i mean it's a pretty thing it's not skewed. it's not us versus china it's our it's it's there's a way in which workers you know around the world have common interests uh, not to be exploited to be able to organize and unionize and that was what people promised nafta would be but that was an empty promise because yep. mexican workers didn't really have the right to organize separate from the company it wasn't real and only now the biden the biden administration is bringing lawsuits against american companies in Mexico for not allowing their workers to unionize. It's a very interesting model. They're saying, let's bring up the the wages of Mexican workers rather than pushing down those wages of American workers. It's an interesting model. And it wouldn't have happened without the renegotiation of NAFTA. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Well, we could go on on this, but uh, our time is limited. So I want to segue to your book, American Made. What happens to people when work disappears, right? Is that the subtitle? There you go. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You got it. Fabulous book. Insightful book. And it has so much to it. Uh, we need another three segments to go through it mm-hmm. all. But why don't you start with a quick synopsis of like why you wrote the book? Like what what sent you down that path? Because it's a little different from your, your normal stuff you do as a journalist. And then, um, then get into the stories of Wally and the other two uh, as as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, I really kind of started the book election night of 2016, when I was dispatched to Wellesley College to gather string for what was supposed to be this historic piece about the first election, the election of the first female president of the United States. Um, You know, it had been all planned out, Hillary Clinton's victory speech, there was someone there, there was somebody in her hometown. And here I was at her alma mater interviewing like the freshmen who were living in her freshman dorm about what it was like. And, you know, of course, that night didn't go as people planned. And the shock on people's faces, the complete disbelief, and you could actually hear people saying, F you, Midwest. You know, people Mm -hmm. were very angry with the middle part of the country who had, um, you know, upended this plan. And so afterwards, like many people, I was struggling with why did this happen? Why did so many people, so many millions of people vote for Trump? Like, if you believe in democracy, you have to ask yourself that question. Sure. Why did they vote for him? And a lot of people started telling me it was because of factories. Like, he's going to save our job. He's going to save he's going to save my plant. And I started. Which he said he would do. He said he would save this plant and that plant. You know, we didn't write much about that. you know, in his rallies, he would always go around saying, um, talking about a plant named Carrier in Indianapolis. It makes uh, air conditioners and furnaces. And it's say, like, how many how many of you are out there from Carrier? And there will always be people from Carrier. How many how many years of seniority do you have? And they'd call out their years of seniority. And and the Carrier was moving to Monterey, Mexico. 
and laying them all off. And he was just, he, he would claim, I'm never going to eat another Oreo cookie because because the company that made Oreos was moving. And so it, it was just, it was a shtick that he had at his rallies and people loved it. The things he, were saying, he, he was saying were not all that different than what Bernie Sanders was saying. Mm-hmm. Rigged economy, we're going we're gonna to stop these companies from moving away. And it really played well with blue collar people, working class people who had, some of whom had never voted in their lives, others who had voted Democrat religiously, this is the crowd it played to. And these were people who who came out of the woodwork to vote for him. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to follow, I'm going to find a factory that, that he has talked about and follow it as it shuts down and see like, how does it change people's worldview to, to, to have, to lose their job like that? And what do they change their mind about him once they realize he's not going to save their jobs. Mm-hmm. So I picked Rexnord, which was a, a plant that made ball bearings and uh, roller bearings in Indianapolis. And I picked it because Trump had this weird Twitter war feud with a union leader there. Um, and at the time, I was like, why does this guy think he can pick a fight with a union leader and pe- and the union members are going to side with him instead of their own union leader? So it was just fascinating. It was the first time I'd ever really talked, been to a union hall, talked to the union guys and I just I followed them I decided to follow them for for seven months it turned out it took seven months for the plan to close down so I mm-hmm. really got to know um, the workers there and I just decided to write a book because I had so much material from that experience that was for the New York Times it ran on the front page I ended up uh, following a woman named Shannon who was a battered woman who had gotten the courage and the and the money to leave this really jerk of a man because of that job in the factory. And she ended up working her way up from a janitor to being becoming a heat treat operator in this plant, dealing with dangerous gases. She was the first woman ever to do that job. So she was like breaking a glass ceiling mm-hmm. in the factory. And I just, um, yeah, I got really into her life. She ended up letting me in. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I ended up wanting to write a book. And so Shannon was was one, a white woman who was a single mom <clears throat> leaving an abusive relationship, and the, the plant was her kind of salvation in part. And then another was Wally. Tell us about Wally. Yeah. So I met Wally at, at a union rally, and he gave this very stirring speech. He was like, we got to stand and fight. And he was talking about interracial worker solidarity. And afterwards, I, I just, I wanted to meet him. I stood in line at Everybody was hugging him, all these white guys in motorcycle jackets. Hmm. And um, and by the end, I was the last person. And he was not bitter at all. He was giving that speech. But in fact, he had a plan for what he was going to do. He said, me personally, I'm going to start a barbecue. He was actually excited to leave the plant and had never wanted to be a factory worker. He came from a family of uh, entrepreneurs and he had always wanted to start his own business. So he, I was like, man, I want to follow that guy to see if he actually does it. If I recall with Wally, he also had the experience that, you know, he had faced plenty of barriers from the white dominated union. So his embrace, his speech about worker multiracial solidarity, it wasn't a gimmick, but his own experience wasn't exactly one of solidarity, right? Well, the union had actually treated Wally pretty well, but his uncle had been at that very same factory 
it was a friends and family factor. You kind of mm. had to know someone to yeah. be hired there. And his uncle got hired in the 60s and, and experienced horrific racism there. The guy that who was supposed to train his uncle refused to even speak to him. So mm. his uncle had to learn how to make the machines work from watching from afar. The day his uncle was promoted to foreman, some guys played a prank on the factory floor. They like burned a cross mm. on the factory floor. And it was just, you know, even just getting hired there, his uncle it went through a crazy story just to be hired. So a lot of the black men in the factory were cynical about the union because they just remember how poorly their uncles and their fathers and their grandfathers have been treated by the union. But Wally was... um Wally was like extremely hardworking and you could see his strategies for success. He was in the union. He also like was really, really had good relations with management. He, everyone loved Wally. He was one of the most beloved people in the whole plant. And you could just see how uh, he worked really hard, but it was also really funny. Like he was a guy who uh, had all his bases covered yeah. to, to make sure that he could succeed at that plant. It was really interesting to to watch him uh, there because actually he he didn't start off as a model factory worker. He had served time in federal prison. Mm. He had been a drug dealer mm -hmm. in his teenage years to support a kid that he thought was his. And he made a lot of money and got into trouble. Yeah. And so he was so grateful for that job. Mm. That, you know, he used to say, I'm blessed, I'm blessed to have this job. And um, so it, it really changed his perspective. And then the last uh, person was a white fellow who was a super staunch union guy. Tell us about him. Yeah. Okay. So John uh, Feltner was the first uh, person I met. I met him in the union hall that first day I went and he was almost militant you know, a militant union guy. He was the grandson of Kentucky coal miner who back in Hazard, Kentucky, they were literally fighting wars against the coal company. They blew up coal tipples to make sure that the scabs couldn't come on and load yep. the trains. And so, you know, he came from this background where, you know, you were in the union you didn't cross the union, you never crossed the picket line, or you knew, you know, you could be killed for crossing a picket line. And so it was fascinating to get to know him because on the one side, he was militant union, he couldn't understand why it was so hard to get people to strike. Uh, but he was a Trump supporter. Mm -hmm. This is kind of a disconnect mm -hmm. um, here. But this was his second plant closing. And so, uh, you know, he was quite jaded about the whole idea of what the company was going to do. He, he predicted rightly that the company was going to trick them and, and that the company was going to ultimately close down. And so he was saying, they're going to close us anyway. We should strike. We should fight with all our might. He fought against tier two, where a lot of, you know, they tried to bring another tier of, of lower paid workers. He's like, that's going to divide the union. Anything that divides the union cannot be tolerated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any talk of race, he felt that divided the union. And so here on the one hand, he was a, a white guy who was fighting every day for the jobs of, of his black union brothers and sisters. But he didn't want to hear any race talk because he felt like it was inflammatory. It was going to divide people. And almost I, my sense was that the, he thought being part of a union transcended that. It put everybody on the same playing field. Is that right? I think he really felt that way. And in a way, unions had very specific pay scales for people. And so, you know, there, there were a lot of battles fought 
in unions to make sure that black people like Wally were treated the same. Mm -hmm. Did it work? Like, of course, you know, of course you had stories of, of supervisors who didn't treat people the same. But I did come away from my relationship with John realizing that on a factory floor, like like Rexnord, they were they lived an interracial life that was it was much more interracial and rich than even my newsroom. They were mm. bowling together. They were working side by side. 40% of the people in that plant were black. Mm -hmm. I don't know any newsroom or law firm or even your history department, you know, where 40% of the people are black. So here we are, my friends in Boston would hear about a guy like John and, and dismiss all oh, race. They're just racists, right? Oh, These right. people who are who are voting for Trump. They're all just bigots. And it, John really complicated that picture because he was a guy with a Confederate flag in his garage. And yet through his life, he'd probably knew more black people, worked with more black people and had fought for more black jobs than most of the white guys I know. Yeah, most of the educated elites. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's just so fascinating. And, and reading about John, it just, he reminded me of so many coal miners and that from yeah. from Appalachia that I've got uh, the privilege to get to know. Well, we are we are just about out of time. Um, so I I want to ask you, and this is a tough one, but Rural Urban Bridge Initiative is focused on that uh, lens of the many things that divide us, kind of the geographical lens, and and not just the fact that we're in different places, but the fact that rural lives and rural livelihoods, small town livelihoods, are often very different from those in urban, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm thinking is wrap us up with what you would say are the one or two or three biggest takeaways from all the research you did for your book, all the time you spent with with Wally and with Shannon. Yeah. Shannon, sorry about that. Um, you know, what would you say for the listeners on this show were the things that were the biggest insights for you in this process in understanding this divide? My number one biggest insight is that people like John and Shannon and Wally want jobs. They want to work. They want to work. They don't want to have to move halfway across the country and live in a city to have a decent paying job. Mm -hmm. Uh, and they also don't want to necessarily get a college, have to get a college degree to have a decent paying job. But what what was lost when the factories were lost was the ability for a, a person to graduate high school and let them earn uh, enough to support their family and 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 live right there in their community. So a lot of well-meaning friends of mine really fight for that notion of a safety net, of, of bigger welfare checks, of child tax credits, and all of these things. But I, there was a real hunger among those steelworkers to earn, earn their check. They did not respect people who lived off the government, and they didn't even trust the government. So why would they live uh, off a government check? So they, you know, universal basic income. I didn't hear any of them sort of arguing for that. Right, uh, I, right. I heard a lot. A lot of them had snide things to say about their own relatives who lived off government check right. and, and when they could have worked, could have worked as hard as me. So that was an insight. And I think a lot of times people, educated people will say, well, they don't vote their own interests. And it's like, well, do we really know? How much do we know about their interests? We don't even know them. And, you know, in our daily lives, we don't encounter or listen to enough people like them. Yeah, and I, yeah. we should. Yeah. We, we I mean, should. and the other thing is it's such a basic form of being a, 
an adult that I think that we don't want to be dependent on others. Now, that's not universally true, but I'd say the vast, vast majority of people, once they get out of their parents' home, they want to be able to take care of themselves and, and oftentimes family members and even their community a little bit. So this notion that simply, like you say, providing the, the bare minimum safety net and all that stuff, which the left is often preoccupied with, it completely overlooks the fact that people, most people don't want that. They, they want to be able to m- make it themselves. I mean, I would say universal health care would be a very useful safety right, net. Right. I think sure. that that the healthcare piece was a was a really big uh, learning. All three characters uh, by the end crossed paths with the hospital system, mm-hmm. and and it it was almost like a vampire system in that any single person I met in in Indianapolis with any amount of ambition wanted to be a nurse because that was the job you could get that was never going to move away. Mm. And so you could feel like as the as the factories like left, you know, the hospital system was growing. <laughs> I don't know. It was just a weird it was uh, it, it it was a weird that so much uh, money is made off dying and illness. Mm, and mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, I, I do think it, uh, universal health care would 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 help a lot. Um, but uh, in general, people wanted to, they wanted a place in the economy, a yeah. uh, place of respect. And and that was how they knew to get it, was to to, to be employed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or self-employed. So this is, this is fabulous. We're going to wrap up now. Do you have any new projects on the horizon that are kind of book length? Mm-hmm. Or are you, um, was one book uh, in, enough for a I'm, little bit? I'm considering, I'm thinking about, uh, well, Wally inspired me to uh, join forces with a cousin of mine who lives in Detroit and start renovating houses in Detroit. So my cousin and I have uh, have done that a bit. And I'm thinking of writing a book about that that experience just because it's about Black entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. Black homeownership, and the, the financialization of housing and how, how homes are now, um, you know, being bought up by private equity. and Just an asset. Uh, That's all it is to them. Just a financial asset, not a, yeah, not a, it's an not asset. a warm place. And people place. from all over the world own these houses in Detroit. Um, you know, we were trying to buy a house and the owner was in Singapore. Oh, so it's like, mm-hmm. I can't buy a house in Singapore, but... I think that, you know, yeah. well, maybe I can, but probably, not. <laughs> uh, probably not. Most countries in the world are not, are, are not like that. So I guess anyway, that's, I'm considering, uh, writing about this crazy adventure. Oh, that's cool. uh, and in the meantime, you're helping contribute to affordable housing and wealth accumulation for black families. I mean, those are both really essential things. Hopefully yeah. first yeah. and foremost, my, my own relatives, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. sure, sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, such a delight to speak with you, Farah. I'm um, just thrilled that we're at some level, we're collaborators, and I uh, can run ideas by you periodically, and you're always great to respond. So we are uh, here on Two Worlds, One Country, a program on WEHC and WISE Wise FM, and we have been proud to have as our guest this week, Farah Stockman. Thanks, Farah. 